Today on the podcast, a lot of people are now wondering when they're going to have to go back into the office. But the question we're asking is, will you have to go back into the office? We talk about what the ADA has to say about that. And also we hear about an aspiring condiment impresario who had a plan to never have to work again. His plan was to take the biggest name in ketchup to court. We'll explain all of that, plus update you on the latest legal news. Stay with us. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the new legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. If you're a loyal listener to our podcast, you know what it's all about. We feature the best reporting coming out of the Bloomberg Law newsroom, and we bring you some of the odder things dredged up by our team of intrepid docket divers. Today, we're going to be talking about the legal issues surrounding the return to the workplace. But first, let's take a look at the biggest legal news stories of the week. The Biden administration has decided to increase the cap on seasonal guest worker visas by two-thirds, according to several sources who spoke to Bloomberg Law. The Labor Department and the Department of Homeland Security will add an additional 22,000 H-2B visas, which allow companies to hire foreign workers for temporary jobs. That will bring the total for the second half of this year to 55,000. All 33,000 H-2B visas for the first half of this year have been claimed. The move is one business interests, especially those in agriculture and seafood, have been requesting for years, but it's also opposed by labor unions who say seasonal guest workers drive down wages. Generation Z is in law school now, and according to a survey released today, they do not want to have to work in an office. Nearly two-thirds of law students born after 1995 say they want total control over whether they work in or out of an office. That's from a survey of 240 students done by the firm Major Lindsay and Africa. Additionally, slightly more than half of the students said they would take a pay cut if it meant their employer would give them a flexible work arrangement. We'll have more on the future of remote work later in the episode. If you are former Attorney General Eric Holder and you're listening to this podcast right now, turn it off and get back to work. Your time is way too valuable. Holder is now a partner at the firm Covington and Burling, and he was recently retained by a university in Oregon to do an investigation into its work culture. Because that university is public, we now know that Holder's hourly rate is $2,295. Holder served as attorney general in the Obama administration. So the coronavirus pandemic is far, far from over. There are still around 60,000 cases of COVID-19 being diagnosed in the U.S. every day, a number that's actually risen since this time last month. However, here's another number for you, 210 million. That's roughly how many Americans have received a COVID-19 vaccine, and that number is increasing by around 3.5 million every single day. Those two figures are creating a situation in the U.S. that's giving some people a lot of anxiety. The pandemic is still a major health threat, albeit one that is now diminished, but enough people are getting vaccinated that many employers are beginning to wind down this great work-from-home experiment we've all been participating in. What rights do these workers have if they don't feel safe going back to the office? The answer is very complicated, and here to break it all down for us is Aaron Mulvaney, a Bloomberg Law reporter who covers labor and employment issues. Aaron says workers fighting for the right to work from home are now in a much stronger legal position than they were just a year ago. And she says it all comes down to three little letters, A, D, and A. 
The Americans with Disabilities Act actually does provide protections for employees who have disabilities. And it's a little bit complicated to answer the question of what accommodations they actually get because the ADA is a pretty um, interactive law. You know, that's kind of how employment lawyers discuss it because essentially if a person with disability needs something that would make their work equal to others, they would ask their employer for that accommodation and then there would be an interactive discussion over whether that's a reasonable request or not. And that's kind of where the kind of legal jargon gets involved. But I can answer generally um, and say that a person with disabilities, say that has mobility issues, might be given um, better access to things that are in their office space. There might be an accommodation for remote work and that's kind of what we are talking about with the pandemic. Um, it also depends on the type of company and whether that's something that a company could offer. Well, let's get into how the pandemic affects this because, um, you know, things are looking up. We're getting a lot of people vaccinated um, and it seems like offices are going to reopen pretty soon. Many of them already have. Um, but there are still a lot of people who are apprehensive about going back to the office, maybe people who have certain conditions that make them more um, you know, make it more dangerous for them to, if they get COVID, what kind of, um, rights do these people have to ask their employers to not have to go back into the office? So to be clear, the Americans with Disabilities Act absolutely will cover an accommodation like that. If somebody wants to continue their remote work, um, fear of COVID, however, is not necessarily protected under the ADA. And that means that you might be afraid that you'll catch COVID, which, you know, statistically could be reasonable depending on when your employer required you to come back, whether you're vaccinated or not. And so there are actually very tricky open questions about some of these things because, for example, if you, you're you fearful to catch it and bring it back to your home, you know, some people say that could be something that's an associational disability as well. And that really hasn't been tested that, that in this context yet. That's really interesting. So there's, there's the, the line between people who have uh, conditions themselves that make them more susceptible to COVID or make it more dangerous for them to have COVID versus people who are just in a, in a situation where they're worried about spreading COVID, but themselves aren't, don't have any disability uh, necessarily that would make them more susceptible. That's, that's a tricky situation. Yes, exactly. That's a really tricky situation. And there also could be something that I, I think a lot of people are talking about that might happen is there are new types of things people are feeling during the pandemic. They're feeling anxiety, they're feeling depression, they're feeling PTSD from this. And that mental illness is protected under the ADA as well. But I think that will be something that's also tested to how far it can go when you're asking for an accommodation when, you know, say an employer really is anxious to get an office work back to work. And I think it's important to note in this conversation, we are really talking about this sect of workers that are office workers, probably that there's they were remote and now they're not. And how does an employer negotiate that? No, that's that's a really good point that we're mainly talking about white collar office workers here. There is a whole class of workers out there who haven't been working remote throughout the whole pandemic. They've been having going into the office because they've had to. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I thought was really fascinating about your story was how this will affect, uh, you know, accommodation cases that have nothing to do with the pandemic where you have someone who says, 
you know, I have a disability, I should be able to work from home, um, and my employer is not allowing me to do that, and they take their employer to court. The employer previously could say, like, well, this job can't be done from home. Uh, they're going to have a much tougher time making that argument now. That was what you kind of outlined in your story. Exactly. And, you know, I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of experts and people I talk to, I think just intuitively, you can say, how could you possibly say that, (laughs) you know, that we aren't, um, that you can't do work from home when not just that, that person who's asking for an accommodation, but the entire workforce conceivably with work from home. I think so many people are having these conversations right now. So for workers with disabilities, they'll, they still, you know, to be fair, they still have to prove that there isn't a reasonable accommodation and to be wonky that it won't cause an undue burden on the employer. Und- undue burden. Yes. Yeah, so it's a very technical term that the courts will use. So some, so some historical background is that the courts often, very often sided with employers in that discussion, because there is a historical idea that you are more productive if you're in the office, if you're at your computer, if you're working with your colleagues. And there's a lot to be said about that kind of interaction and that kind of productivity, that kind of immediate, you show up at nine, you leave at five, your boss sees your face. And I think a lot of it was untested. I mean, and if you look at courts themselves, they were a very much in-person enterprise as well. And now they are they were forced to be remote. You know, even the old school Supreme Court, I can hear it live from my house in my pajamas, which is amazing. You know? I, still can't, I still can't believe we're doing that. I know. And so, um, and for any bosses that are listening, I'm never wearing my pajamas at work. You know? Well, that's, that's um, that makes one of us. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> um, so, you know, I... I just that that's one of the things that I really struck me about your story is that it seems like these cases that before the pandemic employers were regularly winning because they would say we need our workers to be in the office, they might start losing those cases. Like, have we seen a total like paradigm shift in the way courts are going to be treating these cases and the way that the law works here? I really think that the pandemic is going to accelerate these discussions. I think in some ways there is a unique consideration because there is still a lot of unknown and a lot of fear as businesses want to go back. Um, when you look out to hopefully a day where we're, where there's a really high vaccination rate and maybe less fear, um, I think the impl- the workplaces around the country are going to feel the after effects of this. I think right now a lot of employment attorneys are actually advising companies to be flexible, even if they're not required under the law. So when we do talk about courts, which is our job to look at what the ADA actually requires, I think there are a lot of tricky questions that employers are going to have to consider that aren't cut and dry, that are unprecedented. And I don't necessarily think they would have been confronted with in this dramatic of a fashion had the pandemic not happened. When we talk about people with disabilities, I think it's important to note as well that they have an extremely low participation rate in the labor force. But remote work provides that opportunity for people who may otherwise not have participated. So there could be kind of a positive from this as well. That's interesting. Um, is that is that fair to say that like the the, you know, tables have turned a little bit and that 
employees are now uh, kind of may have the upper hand in these kind of suits? I'm really excited to see some of the data that I think it's a little early to see some of the lawsuits that have been filed that will will show that trend. And they're not a perfect case study for what you're asking about, because what you what you're asking about is after the pandemic, will this be something that they'll continue to win in perpetuity? Um, the reason I'm giving you a long answer is because I have actually, when I, I, I wrote a story a year ago predicting that this trend might happen, some employment attorneys said, well, it could also improve, prove the inverse depending on the situation um, if productivity did drop. It, so there, it will just be used as a t- as test case. You know, um, I think the broad brush answer is it's going to be difficult intuitively for an employer to say it's impossible to work from home for my business to be done when they did it for a year with all their employees. Okay, uh, that will do it. Aaron Mulvaney uh, is a reporter on the Labor and Employment Desk here at Bloomberg Law. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So today we have another oddity unearthed by the legal intelligence team here at Bloomberg Law, the ones that track hundreds and hundreds of dockets all across the country all the time. This one is a David and Goliath story, except in our version, David gets totally crushed, but then salvages a partial victory on appeal. Oh, and it also involves ketchup and mustard. Bloomberg Law's Rob Tricanelli explains. Uh, yeah, there's a, 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 a kind of a, a smallish entrepreneur. He, he trademarked the term matchup, which um, you may guess that is uh, he is combining either mayonnaise and ketchup or mustard and ketchup and selling them um, out of the lobby of a, a hotel that he is associated with. But so where, where this gets into the courtroom is when Heinz started making mayo chup. They themselves combined mayonnaise and ketchup and started selling it. And while they were looking for a name the mark to market this, you know, it was kind of like people would write in and suggest what they should call it and how to market it. And Heinz never sold Mechup, but one of the marketing bottles that they like tweeted out and had out there was Mechup. And so this this guy sued Heinz for it. And the trial court here actually not only sided with Heinz, but canceled his trademark, even though he had trademarked Mechup in a, in a legitimate way. Um, that's surprising that his his trademark was straight up just nullified. Well, that so that was at the trial court. Now he appeals. It goes up to the Fifth Circuit, and this is where we come in. Like we wrote about this last week, and uh, the court agreed that um, Heinz didn't infringe anything, but it actually kicked the case back down to the court and said, "Well, it's still an open question. Like it, it's still an open question whether." the trademark should be canceled. You know, the the tra- trademarks are, um, you know, not that difficult to get if you kind of know what you're doing uh, to register for one. And so, you know, courts all the time have to figure out, is this a legitimate use of a trademark or is someone just trademarking something to try and trap a bigger entity or, or a rival or someone into using a term and then they come back and sue them. And so the court was trying to sort out, is this legitimate use? Is this, uh, you know, just a trademark trap? And, um, you know, the, the guy has not sold very much Mechup, uh, but he said he would, like he said he wanted to keep selling it. He did sell some. Heinz gave no evidence that he didn't. And so rather than stripping his trademark away as a matter of law, the, the court kicked it back down and said, we need more factual uh, 
you know, to, like more facts to come out over whether this is a legitimate use of a trademark. So partial redemption for the the David uh, against the Goliath. Um, before we go any further, though, uh, does he even clarify whether matchup is mayonnaise and ketchup or mustard and ketchup combined? Do we even know? So the trademark registration, uh, we I mean, we went and pulled it when we were writing this up. And yes, it, he registered. Uh, his name is Dennis Perry. He registered it and um, he registered it both ways. You are getting at something here with the David versus Goliath aspect of this because the court, the circuit court here, the Fifth Circuit, even when giving this gentleman a partially favorable ruling was just kind of putting little almost little digs at him throughout the opinion and it was it's like he's he's getting a partial win here he gets to his trademark is not canceled anymore but you know they're like if he oh he had big plans for it but it never really got off the ground and there was just sort of like a certain snideness that that to to the opinion even when they were partially ruling in his favor so even when he wins he kind of still loses because the judges are are you know making cracks at him uh, discreetly in their opinions. I mean, not even discreetly. It's in the first paragraph of the opinion. Though he had big plans for matchup, sales have been slow. And, and um, you know, he has produced only 50 to 60 bottles of this, but in, in a, you know, um, a decade's worth of time. But, like, some of those... Some of those facts, you know, that's the kind of thing you would develop at the trial court level when it was a fact question. And here the trial court had ruled against him as a matter of law and just said... Before we even get anywhere near trial, I'm ruling against you on the merits, trademark canceled. And so at least that part was overturned on appeal. Uh, well, Rob is a uh, editor on our legal intelligence desk. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, glad to be on. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Jessica Coombs. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at B-Law. I'm at David B. Schultz. That's B as in B-Law. Thanks for listening, and we will see you all next week. Hi, this is Adam Ellington, the host and producer of Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. It isn't hyperbole to say that the murder trial of George Floyd is likely to be one of the most significant court cases in a generation. In fact, in the nine months since Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, the name George Floyd has become synonymous with a growing movement for police reform, as well as a massive racial reckoning that has spread to all corners of American society. As the trial unfolds, the Uncommon Law podcast will be reporting on the trial in real time, or quasi-real-time. Given the amount of interest in this case and the impact it's sure to have, we felt that it was important to be part of that discussion. So, if you find yourself interested in this case, either in terms of social justice or because of the legal theories and precedents it touches on, or just because you might be on your own journey learning about issues of race and racism, then I think this is the podcast for you. Just click download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.